Hello! Welcome to the 12 Gallons of Milk episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Stacey Marie Ishmael of Bloomberg. Hello. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck of Fundrise. Hello. Hi. And we're going to talk about milk. We're going to talk about the price of milk. We're going to talk about the price of lots of things. We're going to talk about inflation. We're going to talk about job growth. We're going to talk about monetary policy. We're going to talk about the economy. We're going to do one of those things because we did just have a a tapering announcement from the Fed and a very strong jobs report this week. So we're going to cover all that. We're also going to talk about the big news out of Glasgow and the big climate summit that went on there. We are going to talk about Penguin Random House and Monopsony. We are going in Slate Plus to talk about Tungsten Cubes, which I can tell you is a surprisingly fun conversation to have. Um, It's a pretty fun one this week, all coming up on Slate Money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Emily, are we going to lead with milk? Yeah, I think we should. I mean, everyone knows what milk is. It's not a complicated economic term. We know about milk. Uh, what do we know about buy milk? a lot of it. 12 gallons a week, right? Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about milk because CNN had a segment ostensibly about inflation in which they featured a family in Texas with nine children that goes through 12 gallons of milk a week, I guess. And the CNN... Dude went shopping with them at the supermarket, which what family goes shopping all together? It was like seven people going to the supermarket. I, too, take my nine children to go shopping at the supermarket, buy 12 gallons of milk, and then complain that milk has gone up by 40% in the past few months, which it hasn't. The the real reason we're talking about this is because this is our 
occasional foray into the important yet dry world of monetary policy. And milk makes everything wetter. So if you thought monetary policy was dry, you, it's a bit like breakfast cereal. You pour milk on it and it becomes much more palatable. <laughs> We're dunking the monetary policy, the cookie of the monetary policy in the milk of human stories. Or something like that. St- Stacy is everyone. impressed by this the, metaphor. We have tortured this metaphor <laughs> within an inch of its life, if it ever had one. But carry on. <laughs> so, so the the big story, the big news of the week is that we had a monster jobs report on Friday morning. We had like over half a million jobs created in October alone. Um, it turns out that almost half a million jobs were created in August, way more than initially reported. September was really strong unemployment down to 4.6%, wage growth, more basically keeping up with inflation, looking pretty strong there as well. Just an incredibly positive jobs report all around. The economy seems to be doing great. The labor market seems to be doing great. And this coincided also this week, because it's a big week for, you know, big economic news, with the news that the Federal Reserve is tapering, which we can talk about what tapering is. But all of this means kind of like, on the one hand, things are back to normal, but as per the milk story, if there's a public, let's say, disquiet about this good news, it comes in the form of worries about inflation. And and the whole idea of going grocery shopping with a family of 14 in Texas was that the family of 14 claimed that not only milk, but their entire grocery bill had gone up enormously over the past few months, a claim which no one entirely believed, except for the CNN reporter. Yeah, I mean, it's just the things this mother said should have been a little bit better fact-checked. I mean, she said things like, my dollar is now only worth 70 cents, which would, what would that inflation rate be? Something really wild. Yeah, like 50% annualized inflation or something. That would definitely count as hyperinflation. But I mean, but this is also, you know who thinks we have hyperinflation right now? Jack Dorsey with his eight gazillion Twitter followers is like tweeting out, we, you know, hyperinflation is here. So people, and and certainly if you watch Fox News, I I have a wonderful chart showing the, you know, uh, minutes spent talking about inflation on Fox News. It is enormous. And and there is this feeling that once, and I've seen this in Germany as well, which has this national obsession with inflation, that once you're obsessed with inflation, you do wind up seeing it everywhere. It's like the Bader-Meinhof well, effect. I would say the other thing about that family, which is if you are on a very tight budget, increase, which many people are, increases will feel like 30%, right? And... I am not the the member of my household who is the, you know, Costco has the Costco responsibility, but I am certainly getting feedback that like, wow, this salmon that we would normally buy has like significantly increased in price, that there are certain things that, you know, just aren't available anymore. Um, so I, I don't think it is, I don't think there's no consumer price inflation. And I think that the the tighter your budget is, the more your sensitivity to things that might in fact be small, but that to you are very consequential. I feel like there's no doubt that food prices have gone up both anecdotally and you see it in the data too. Maybe not. I mean, this woman's estimate of how much she used to pay for milk as compared to now was just 
blatantly incorrect. Yeah, pe- people, people are bad at estimating, but it's people don't know true that who they voted for are. last Tuesday, let alone how much they paid for milk, you know, six months ago. It's just not something which we have any particular need to store in our long term memory. Right. And and there is something to like econ nerds being like, actually, core inflation hasn't really gone up all that much and it's already trending downwards versus normal people who are like, I go to the store and personally, I've mentioned the mayonnaise costing $8 before, but my God, mayonnaise for $8 was a lot. It was a shocking thing to see. Um, And gas prices are definitely higher than they were, but take into account that they bottomed out in, in, in March and April and May 2020. Like, so your baseline was kind of reset at that point also, which makes things hard right. to there, gauge, there's, there's baseline effects in like annual inflation figures, but there's also baseline effects in psychology. And we're seeing that. And as ever and always, the one permanent truth about public impressions of inflation is that one number matters more than anything else, and that's gas. It's the most salient price in the economy. It's the one price that you see in three-foot-high letters multiple times a day. And when gas prices are higher, and then you have, and then if you had like a number two for the second most salient price in the economy, it would probably be milk. Which is crazy because if you look at historical milk prices, they really don't fluctuate that much. It's like 10, 20 cents, 30 cents. It's not, I mean, if you look at your rent, if you want to talk about things that are now more expensive, rents have gone crazy home prices increased quite a bit college tuition like there are things that cost lots lots more but milk is a pretty steady eddy right you know a share of apple stock you know any anything like yes, that the thing, the thing that a enormously. person thinking about buying milk is also considering is i would like to buy one apple share for sure that's in their <laughs> basket of goods it's, it's a lot cheaper than the tesla chair it's such an interesting political thing also because I, I think, um, Felix, you sent around this really good Substack post from Christopher Ingraham, and he points out that this family in Texas would most certainly be qualifying for ch- the child tax credits that have been going out every month. They, they're they probably getting like close to $2,500 a month. Or more in, between in nine tax children. Credits. Nine, nine more. times 300. Yeah. yeah, you can do the math. I think there's a there's a cap, but um, yeah, so that certainly would offset if they're spending 400 more a month in food prices, they're getting over $2,000. Yeah. So like, it's it's just sort of interesting that they didn't mention that in the piece and like that didn't come up. And politically, it's sort of interesting to me because it's like the the Biden administration is harmed by this perception of inflation, yet they're, they seem to be doing something about it by like literally sending cash to most parents around the country right now and is that not, it's not paying off, it doesn't seem to me, for them, politically. And and meanwhile, while the Biden administration is still very much pushing like these twin stimulus bills, the Fed, I think, has now pretty clearly said, all right, we are no longer in an economic emergency. We have unemployment down to 4.6%. We have significant job growth. You know, we're still 4 million jobs short of where we were pre-COVID. And obviously, the trend line then was upwards. So we're probably, I don't know, six, seven, eight million jobs short of where we would have been without COVID. So there's still a lot of work for the Fed to do. But what they don't need to be doing is these emergency things like um, quantitative easing, which, Stacey, you can explain what QE is. (laughs) Sorry. I haven't had to explain what QE is since I was like writing about it on Alphaville. But 
I mean, I think the the idea that you can infinitely rely on central banks, the Fed, etc., to take the responsibility for take all of the responsibility for inflating the economy, I guess, or at least providing stability to banks is something that we're starting to see is not, is not true. I mean, there was a period when I think Lorcan Roche Kelly, who's like the foremost commentator on, on QE and who's now a colleague of mine at Bloomberg, every single peer in the direction of, yes, we're going to buy more long-dated securities or we're not going to buy as many long-dated securities was was headline worthy. Um, but I think the lesson or the the signal now from the folks involved is like, get over it. We're returning to normal operations. And, and the Bank of England has even come out and started, you know, saying it was going to hike rates, which is way ahead of where the Fed is. That You know, people are f- expecting the Fed to hike interest rates in like mid-2022 at the earliest right now. And so the world is going back to a little bit of normal in a relatively healthy economic environment with a massive asterisk around COVID, supply constraints, prices being a bit, you know, volatile. And what we don't have is is what you might call dynamic equilibrium in the economy. We don't really know um, what the sort of steady, predictable growth rate or inflation rate or anything like that is because we're still in crazy supply constraint world but we're not in an economic emergency anymore and that's awesome yeah and i think that's what's so interesting about this period right now i mean there are all these signs out there that we're in like a boom basically unemployment is falling jobs are being created companies can't find enough workers stock market's doing really well people are spending money on tungsten cubes which maybe we can talk about later like everything is is like coming up roses here, yet people like this family in Texas don't feel like it is because things are still so weird, you know? So like, I keep thinking like, we're in a boom. I'm kind of like bracing myself for some kind of like bubble bursting because that's in my nature, I guess. But I recognize we're doing well, that, that, that the economy is doing well, yet it doesn't feel like anyone like a lot of other people are seeing it that way especially politically like their elections didn't go well for the the Biden administration this week and I spent a taxes, lot of time talking to a pollster on Friday just after the jobs numbers came out about this exact question and like why aren't people feeling the economy why don't people think that the economy is doing well even when the economy is objectively doing well and it's an interesting question, which I'm going to write about more on Tuesday on Axios, but I think that TLDR is basically still COVID, you know, that COVID just whacked people. And it's and while a lot of Republicans seem to have, like, forgotten about COVID entirely at this point, Democrats and independents have not. Most of their kids are still unvaccinated and going back to school and they're worried about that and the job situation is still weird with COVID. There's still masks in a lot of places. So that makes people feel nervous. A lot, you know, almost everyone knows someone who's died of COVID. And and it's um and it's been a big shock to the psyche. And economic confidence is fundamentally much more about a psycho it's much more a psychological thing than it is uh, sort of how big is my bank balance thing. Oh, and one other thing as well. People really like the idea that they have the ability to fend for themselves and earn the amount of money they need to look after themselves. That makes them feel a lot better than my 
bank account has a bunch of money in it because the government put it there. Um, what do you do if you have all this money in your bank account, at least relative to your baseline, but you can't buy the stuff you want? I mean, I, I also wonder what the... You, 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 you buy Shiba coins. Please do it. The... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, I was I was talking to some friends about I was like, hey, what do my nieces and nephews want for, you know, Christmases and birthdays that are coming up in the next several months? And they're like, at this point, they're like, oh, well, it's October. I was like, yeah, have you have you read any of the stories that I've been sending you about supply chains? The, the, the big the big <laughs> Christmas gift this year is going to be like Roblox coupon. <laughs> Here's a gift card. Try to buy something for yourself later in the year when things are spend available. it spend it wisely, but only within Minecraft. But there is a weird disconnect between people having the ability to buy things and not necessarily being able to buy the things they want. They're like, I'd like a new car, can't get a new car. Um, I, I'd like a secondhand car, can't get a secondhand car. You know, it's just it's a it's a very strange time. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's rebel billionaire on the slow newscast wherever you get your podcasts. So after talking about big picture, macroeconomic, broad subject like, you know, the entire US economy, I feel the only thing we can do here is broaden it out even more and talk about the entire planet, which, you know, in case you didn't know, is burning up and spent burning carbon far too fast. And the big summit this week in Scotland has been devoted to this and trying to save the planet. Um, it was on its face a little bit disappointing because we still hadn't passed any kind of green infrastructure bill in the United States. Um, and most importantly, China was not making any new promises. And in fact, um, the Chinese delegation was more or less non-existent in, in Glasgow. And China being the biggest carbon emitter in the world, kind of, it's important that China gets involved in these things. That All that said, I am pretty impressed that there was actual substantial progress made in Glasgow this year. And this is an annual thing. And I feel like for a one-year progress i think we did okay what are the things that impressed you three main things impressed me one of them is actually comes from the private sector we haven't really seen this before but we now have this coalition of investors um both um sovereign wealth funds and sort of like public 
investors, but also a lot of investors, pension funds, um, and private investors saying we are going to really put our investment portfolios to use in creating a net zero economy. Now, there's a little bit of confusion about exactly what that means, but this is something that has not happened before. You haven't had like these coalitions coming together to say they're going to work on this before. When they started putting this coalition together in April, they had $5 trillion of assets under management, which is a lot of money and does move the needle, but is not enough to really do everything that needs to be done in terms of private sector investment in greening the planet. Where we're at now, just in the past six months, basically, that $5 trillion has become $130 trillion, which really is enough. Like, that is a fuck ton of money. And so I'm kind of impressed that we have got, you know, you know, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, like, this is just pledges, nothing has happened yet. But we have the promises, and that's not nothing. You can't do anything without the promises. That's necessary, even if it isn't sufficient. The next thing we did this year was a really important global coalition pledging to cut methane emissions. And methane emissions are a really big deal. That It's a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And... It looks like we're really attacking methane in much the same way that we um, previously attacked things like um, ozone and chlorofluorocarbons and that kind of thing. We know how to do that, and we're doing it. And so I'm kind of impressed by that. And then finally, the third big one that I was impressed by was the reforestation pledge, which even Bolsonaro in... um, in Brazil was like, yeah, I'm going to sign on to this. We're going to basically end deforestation and start building the forests back. Again, promises, not reality, but that's all you can do at a big summit like this is make promises. And it turns out, if you look at most of the promises that most leaders have made over the past decades, like they've actually kept them surprisingly frequently. So that's my that's my case for optimism. And talk about the, the pledge shame connection. Everything I read or listened to about the summit, everyone was like, look, these aren't enforceable promises. They're just promises and pledges, but you can really shame these global leaders into action. It's worked before and that's all we have. So it's good and fine. And shame is it. Kerry is really big on this humiliation concept, maybe because he has <laughs> John John Kerry, our climates are, you know, and, and famous loser of a presidential election, knows what it's like to suffer humiliation. And he's like, humiliation works as a incentive for leaders to meet their promises. I think he's maybe overstating this a little, but not by that much, right? I think I think that this idea that there is no global court that can enforce these things right all we have is the power of promises and if we are going to save the planet it is going to be via this mechanism of promises we don't have any choice so we may as well just try and make these promises as binding as possible but not in terms of a legal why thing, don't we have any no- choice though like like whenever you know with these gatherings of people are like well we're in charge of entire economies well, the- countries yeah. Mm-hmm. billions of dollars in corporate wealth, but there's literally nothing that we can do. Okay, so Stacey, let me let me just put it, ask you that. Like, let's say you wanted something more, right? You wanted more than a problem. You wanted something enforceable. You wanted yeah. something with teeth. Like, what would those teeth look like? What kind of 
global world government dictator organization <laughs> would be empowered to punish a company, a country that failed to live I up mean, to I mean, I tried to what write sort of form would those punishments undergraduate thesis take? about international accountability, and it was like too hard. So, <laughs> so instead, I wrote about FIFA as a supranational institution instead. Um, but I, I do think that I don't think there is a global enforcement mechanism beyond some amount of not so much shaming. I'm more from the perspective of leading by example and introducing opportunity costs for other people who don't, right? And they, and that's kind of, the tension is you need people who are willing to step up in ways that potentially affect short-term growth or that affect profitability from a corporate perspective um, and kind of reduce the barrier to entry for others. It's sort of like an honor amongst thieves, not saying that these are all thieving folks, um, but they are stealing from the environment. And I don't know if I have seen sufficient kind of willingness of that, you know, or willingness to lead of that kind outside of the corporate sector. I do, I have been impressed by a handful of companies whose names I will not say because they will immediately disappoint me <laughs> with something that they do tomorrow. Um, whereas, you know, political leaders, Bolsonaro's like, yeah, we will reforest the Amazon. Like, well, why has it been deforested at the rate that it's been in the past five years? Yeah, like under I, I don't tenure. trust <laughs> Bolsonaro any further than I can throw the guy. But I think the one thing which is like sort of undergirds my private sector data point um, and the and the Glasgow $150 trillion Glasgow Alliance, which really does make me excited about this, is that I think we have now, I can see us really turning the corner right now. And I've definitely seen this talking to European investors, not and to a certain extent, American investors, but like this seems to be, the consensus now among like really, really big sort of trillion dollar European investors is that there is no trade-off anymore. That the world, it, that, that we are on this sort of sustainable path and in the same way that um, high carbon investments have been underperforming for like the past 10, 15 years and green investments have been outperforming, that is going to continue and the it is in everyone's financial interest to do this, not only like in terms of like a healthy, sustainable planet is better for the economy than one that's burning up, which is obviously true, but just in terms of like that's where the economic growth lies and that's where the returns lie. That's that's the whole idea behind, you know, a Green New Deal. We don't have a Green New Deal, but we have like a Green New Deal light in the form of the infrastructure bill is the this isn't a kind of like we will make sacrifices for the sake of the planet conversation anymore so much as it's a we will reap the benefits of transitioning to a zero carbon economy. I did realize that there is one enforcement mechanism. It's the youth. <laughs> um, <laughs> Greta will save us. Not just not just Greta. I mean, I feel like I have been really struck by the fed upness, as it were, of, you know, younger people, teenagers, and kind of across the political spectrum in terms of the households they're coming from, um, and how they're feeling about the environment, about climate. And I do think the reality of having lived through two years of what feels like either everything is literally on fire or covered in snow or covered in snow, then deluged, then on fire, um, has just been strange, you know? And I, and I think that, you know, going back to what we said at the top, I think the overarching feeling that like something isn't working 
this can't be normal. There has to be a better way. I'm very excited to see how like, we collectively are held responsible by an upcoming electorate, by folks who are trying to vote with their dollars, and by folks who are just like, generally very media savvy. Right? Like, there are a lot of entirely legitimate criticisms of various movements, and Sunrise is not exempt from that, but they have shown both a willingness and an ability to use their, you know, collective smarts and expertise to push things in a, in a different direction. Yeah, they're still not voting in enormous numbers compared to the old, though. Yeah, I I, I want to be optimistic, like like you folks are. Oh, I didn't say I was optimistic. So it was like less impressed. <laughs> <laughs> you have to understand the Stacey Marie Ishmael baseline it's is like, not high. To be clear. <laughs> <laughs> First, I think even the pledges that were made at COP26 wouldn't, we wouldn't meet our target or the target of staying two degrees Celsius or under in warming. Like we are on a path to like three or four degrees right now. And, and I feel like the economic change and growth that you're talking about, Felix, is good, but it's not going to be enough. Like you need governments to step up and like create some policy to really push this along. You know, like we got smoking rates down fast in the United States because of shame, because of health and science, but also because of policy. Like it, it all needs to work together. Otherwise it's not going to work. And we do have a substantial percentage of people in the United States that are like still thinking that this isn't a real thing, you know, like there's a, a big chunk of people like that. At the same time, there is a perception right now that we just talked about in the last segment that gas prices are already too high and there's an energy crisis and, and shortages yeah. and things like the, that. The, the energy happening. crisis, I feel, is, you know, COVID related. And, you know, as I say, there will be COP27, there'll be COP28, there will be a there will be opportunities, you know, next year and the year after. We'll all to be start underwater by doing then, more. But carry on. And 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 the other thing I'll say is that America is an outlier in terms of people not really believing in global warming. There's a lot of Americans who think that global climate change is just a nothing burger in America. And that's just not the case in pretty much any other country, except for possibly Brazil. But even there, like, I think they can see what's going on. It's pretty visible. So I think it, uh, you know, if you want, again, to be less pessimistic, a la Stacey, then say, you know, everyone else is kind of on the right page here with the Chinese you know, pledges to stop building coal-fired power plants and stuff, they've already happened. Like, part of the reason why China didn't make any new pledges this year was that they already made a bunch of really big pledges back in December. And then, like, the big surprise this year was India coming out and saying they were going to be net zero by 2070. No one expected that. Like, if you get China and India, the European Union is already pretty much on track. Like, you're doing pretty well in terms of global governments. U.S. is the biggest problem because you can't do anything without congress and congress has structural reasons why it doesn't want to do things but globally speaking i think there's room for optimism can i just say one more thing about shame sorry yeah that i feel i need to point out it's funny to me that john Kerry is big into this shame as motivating factor kind of argument when we just came off four years of a president who completely revamped what it means to be motivated by shame by which i mean to say he was not motivated by shame at all and like changed the way politics works in, in that regard in this in this country. And so to have someone now arguing that that's like a powerful motivating factor is hard to believe just because we know it can change pretty quick. 
Yeah, maybe. I mean, I do think Trump is an outlier, but then again, you know, you also have Boris Johnson. And so like, you know, it's not like he's unique. We should talk about books. Yeah, let's talk. About, I'm, I'm always down to talk about books. So Stacey's big thing on books is independent bookstores and the monopoly that is Amazon. And we're not going to talk about any of that. Instead, we're going to talk about the monopsony <laughs> that may or may not be Simon and Schuster Random Penguin House, the biggest publisher in the world, or certainly the biggest trade publisher in the world, which means books that normal people like us buy is Penguin Random House, which is a subsidiary of Bertelsmann, which is this massive German company. And uh, a few months ago, Viacom CBS, which is another one of those like unwieldy corporations, decided it was putting up its publishing arm for sale, Simon and & Schuster. And the um, general consensus was there was no way that Bertelsmann was going to be able to buy it because that would just never pass antitrust scrutiny. And then what happens, but Bertelsmann announces that it's buying Simon & Schuster for a big premium. Um, and everyone was like, yikes, is the DOJ going to be okay with this? And it turns out no, that no, the DOJ was not okay with this. Um, and they are taking an antitrust, uh, they, they filed an antitrust suit saying like it can't be allowed to happen. The really, really interesting thing about this trust antitrust suit for me is that they are not claiming that the merged company would be a monopoly. They are claiming that the merged company would be a monopsony. Which, one, I can never spell correctly. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it is it is so, so interesting. Sort of like the idea of like a monopoly buyer of author's work is incredible and true. So, Felix, explain more what monopsony means for those of us who know what it means, but also still can't explain it <laughs> like me. <laughs> a monopoly is where there is a single seller and because you're the only seller in town you can set your price if you if you're the only grocery store in town you can charge eight dollars for a gallon of milk and no one will have any choice but to pay eight dollars for a gallon of milk um, and you can make massive profits on that a monopsony is where there's a single buyer so let's say that you're you know an industry town and you you run the the local you know car manufacturing plant and that's basically the only job in town then you can set the wages and because there's no one else hiring people you can set the wages unrealistically low and people are like well i guess i'm just going to have to take those wages because i don't have any choice and what the doj is saying about the book publishing business is that author advances are a weird form of wages, basically. They're a way that publishers pay authors. They're the main way that authors get paid. And the if you have one merged company, which would, according to the DOJ, account for as much as two-thirds of all author advances, then basically that company can start lowballing authors and authors will make less money and that will be bad for authors. But it would also be bad for the broader book ecosystem because happier authors <laughs> makes for better books. Uh, the, the consumer harm is really fascinating here. The consumer harm is um, consumers will end up reading worse books because a, the authors hey, won't, won't have harm, been paid okay? enough to write good books. <laughs> like authors already don't make tons of money. Yeah, I think it's so interesting. Like, so typically the the Department of Justice focuses on harm to consumers only, but this suit focuses on harms to authors. 
and has all these delicious examples of bidding wars between Simon and Schuster and Penguin Random House, um, where they compete to get the book from like the famous politician or whoever. The um, Grammy Award winning artist. Yes, who is that? And what's lots the book of blind items. We want to know who what was the it? who was the Grammy Award oh. winning artist who got eight million dollars for their memoir after a bidding war between Penguin Random House and Simon and Schuster. See, we want bidding to know. wars, even if it's going still currently benefiting the one percent. But yes, <laughs> so that's all really interesting. And and like Stacy was saying, there is a trickle down effect if you're harming authors and consolidating the book publishing business. Then we do get worse books. We already kind we of have, have a lot of bad books. The, books those right bestsellers now. they're they're bidding over aren't aren't typically good books. They're like things politicians have someone else write for them that come out too fast and are not something anyone actually wants to read. And I, I have to agree with Stacey. Like, w- there is a large part of me as a journalist who receives large quantities of books in the mail. Um, there is a large p- part of me which says we have way too many books already. And, and like, why do we worry about this problem? Or we have way too many new books. We are publishing way too many new books. But the fact is that the reason that I think that there are too many new books is because the quality of those new books is too low. And if those new books were better quality, then I would be much happier about the number of new books. And the best way to make higher quality new books is to allow authors the time and resources to write good books rather than rushed books. And the way to do that is to give those authors healthier advances. Especially when one of the reasons so many of those books are just straight, like filled with mistakes is because most authors have to, if they're going to do fact checking, if you're doing nonfiction, like that's, you have to pay that out of your advance, right? Like that's not sort of covered for you if you have legal fees. The, I think one of the hard things for a lot of people, even people who love books and read books is the economics are so often invisible. And it was just really interesting to kind of see the, the DOJ kind of like cast a little bit more of a light on stuff that's usually just very behind the scenes. I love the dynamics of book auctions more than life itself book auctions are just really really fascinating i've done a little bit of a deep dive into how they work they're not that there's they're highly complex auction designs like and then there's that you even get like meta auctions where you try it where, where like the book agent and the publishers kind of jostle a little bit on what kind of auction it's going to be um we seem to be moving from English style rounds of bidding to single round sealed bid auctions. Anyway, it's, it, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in the world. We do a whole show about just those two types of auctions that you've described. Maybe we totally. get some and book people on. We would maybe we should get a book auction person to talk about book auctions one of these days. But um, for the time being, it looks like the DOJ is coming out hard against Bertelsmann buying Simon and Schuster. I am sure that. Well, I mean, if you look at the press release that. Bertelsmann put out, they're going to fight this very hard. They say that some of the facts in the complaint are wrong. And while the anti-monopsony statute is 100% right there in the statute, and it is 100% something that can be upheld by a judge, it really hasn't been used much in the past 40 years in antitrust cases. So I guess on one level, like Bertelsmann has that on its side, right? That will a judge really say... I'm going to block this gazillion dollar merger on the basis of this monopsony thing that no one can even spell. I think so because people actually understand the stakes in a in a case in this case about book publishing. Everyone gets it. Like But the stakes easy, are author read. advances. 
People don't really care that much about author advances. Or even understand author advances. Yeah, but okay. But even if you back up from the stakes or author advances, like the biggest book publisher buying the third biggest book publisher is just like, oh yeah, that seems, that seems bad. You know, like even if you can't argue that it would cause prices to go up for consumers because we live in the Amazon age and all this, like it's still kind of at the heart, very traditional kind of thing that is easy to understand and therefore people, I would think, would get behind. The one thing I was surprised to see in the complaint was the absence of the word fiction, because the real monopoly here in this merger is in fiction. Um, they would like they they would have like more than three quarters of the fiction list and the new the new novels coming out. Um, but yeah, DOJ kind of I guess they looked at that and said no, we can we're just going to talk about trade publishing more generally because this is always the way that you fight back against an, an antitrust complaint is by saying like no no you've got the market wrong you're defining the market wrong and so the DOJ just said no we'll we'll define the market with all trade books. Of course, Bertelsmann came back and said, well, trade books are just a subset of the bigger book market. And the bigger book market, we're not so big. And besides, even in trade books, there's still four big publishers and five to four mergers. People are normally cool with that. So I think they have a chance, depending on on which judge they get. It's always the thing. But at least now more people will know the word monopsony. (laughs) It's a great word. We should all use it more often. Um, I think we should have a numbers round. Emily, do you have a number? I have a number. Um, I was going to do milk prices, but that feels played out now, you guys. Um, I'm going to do four. My number is four. That is four weeks. That is the number of weeks of paid leave that are now included in the Build Back Better struggling bill that probably maybe we don't know if it'll ever come to fruition. But it's been interesting as someone who thinks about paid parental leave a lot to sort of watch what's happened over the past I don't, God, it feels like 10 years, but maybe it's been a few months because it was originally, there was 12 weeks of leave in this proposal. Then there were zero, then there were zero weeks. And now it's sort of, it's back to four. And it's this very popular notion that people should have paid time off, you know, when they have babies or someone gets sick and we just went through a pandemic where everyone needed a little bit of paid leave, most people. Um, Yet it's still been this incredible uphill battle just to get it included in this gigantic bill, which also is now going to include this massive tax break for rich people in the Northeast. But that's for another show. But feel free to ask me about it. (laughs) In another show. My number is 248,000 which is the amount by which the August payrolls report was wrong. <laughs> um, when when the August payrolls report came out at the beginning of September, they announced that 235,000 jobs had been created, and this was way lower than people had expected. People were expecting something like 400,000. It came in at 235,000. It was a big disappointment, and it started this entire... Um, like multi-month news narrative about how the Delta virus was really holding back hiring and holding back the economy. Now we have gone back, you know, the lovely government statisticians have gone back and looked at what the number really was. They've revised the number twice. And the number is now 483,000, which is actually, if that had come out initially, that wouldn't have been a disappointment at all. That would have been a big win. And this is, you know, how statistics work. There are big error bars on the jobs report and 
you do get big errors, and 250,000 is definitely a big error. Um, But it just reminds us how much uncertainty there is in these statistics and how much we don't know even about the economy of the recent past, let alone the economy of the future. Yeah, it's kind of wild because the the discourse last month was so like, this is awful, end of the world, disappointing, everything's falling apart. And now it's just like, oh, whoops, we were wrong. <laughs> it was actually right what, what everyone said well, it mean, was. The, the mere and... fact of conceding that we were wrong is not necessarily something that that particular element of Twitter is known for. So <laughs> I feel like Twitter did a pretty good job on Friday morning of saying, uh, yeah, we were completely wrong about the job situation being bad. It turns out that the job situation was quite good. Um I, that's like, one of the things I like the about the political Twitter. ramifications. There was just like a big election. And I mean, I don't know if the jobs numbers ha- have a role in that, but they definitely lead to a vibe <laughs> of a feeling. The, the vibe of <laughs> right? the feeling. And it was bad. Yeah. Would Democrats still control the this Virginia the vibes economy. State House so if, if it hadn't been for the bad vibes in the August jobs report? Somebody like light a candle or something and, and sort, sort these vibes out. Oh, man. Just wave some sage around <laughs> something. It doesn't matter if you have jobs. It matters if you know that you have jobs. Stacey, what's your number? A billion dollars. Um, which is... So I fell into a very, very deep hole of NFTs and watch sales. Oh, and, another NFT number. Uh, flash, flash loans. And one of the first things that I saw is that the person who sold that um, crypto bank to themselves has now listed it for a billion dollars. So if anyone wants to buy <laughs> a billion dollar, a billion crypto dollar bank. NFT crypto bank, like feel free. But the other thing is I could not get the, a specific number for how much. Stacey, you had one job. I know I did, right? Um, so I got three numbers instead. So one, one number is a billion. One number is zero. Um, it is very likely that the person was able to get, you know, more than $500 million in instant loans and pay a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of a cent in fees because of how these flash loans are constructed, which is like the idea that we talked about in the previous episode, that because in theory, there's no risk. A tiny fraction of a cent as in dollars and cents or cents as in like percent on the dollar? As the in dollar. dollars and cents. It's something like, you know, 0.00001 of a cent um, would have been the cost in a unit of Ethereum known as Wei, W-E-I. Because depending on where they borrowed the money from, there isn't necessarily even a real interest rate of any kind. There's a transaction fee, and those transaction fees are very low. At the other end of the spectrum, there's the possibility that they paid as much as $500,000 because some flash lenders will require a 0.9% um, transaction fee for that. 0.09%. 0.09%, exactly. Not like 90. <laughs> um, so I think one of the things I find so fascinating slash frustrating about this market is when I called around and I was like, okay, help me understand why everybody thinks this is such low risk that they don't need any money to compensate. They're like, oh, because it's low risk. I'm like, that is a circular answer <laughs> to the question, right? The idea that the inherent feature of this market is safety, therefore it's safety and you don't need to be you know, compensated in any way for potential risk is baffling, particularly when flash loans are not immune to manipulation, right? There, there have been several recent examples of folks who were able to effectively like run away with the money um, in breach of what that smart contract that is a flash loan otherwise specified. So I'm heartened on a certain level that you you took this upon yourself and you didn't take the slate money 
question and like get move the entire team of Bloomberg reporters onto the, the question of like how much does the flashdown cost? But I I'm with you on this one. The opacity of the flash loan market really does stand out in the crypto world that prides itself on transparency. More on this to come, but we're going to have more um, crypto flavored conversation in Slate Plus when Stacy is going to tell us what it's like to hold a tungsten cube. Stay tuned for that, Slate Plus listeners. Otherwise, thank you for listening to this here show. We loved talking and we love it when you send us emails we read them the email address is sleepmoney at sleep.com many thanks to Shana Roth for producing and we will be back on Monday with the next episode of Succession I think we have Mike Mechanic talking about rich people after that as ever next Saturday there will be more Sleep Money <laughs> 